This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast Transformative Principle and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Frederick Wayne, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, and today, obscenity. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org. The Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyberethics, a 501c3 independent nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricula development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. Hey there, Jethro. Hey, good Monday. Good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you as well. We're going to have ourselves an interesting conversation today, as we usually do. on uh, some emerging legislation from the state of Texas. And uh, we'll just summarize it as Governor Abbott's proposed parental rights bill, but it's got some interesting provisions in it. And to help us better understand some of that, we've invited Dr. Bryant Paul to come onto the podcast today and tell us a little bit about the legal standards that underlie uh, Governor Abbott's proposal. So, Frank, good to see you again today. Nice to see uh, both of you as well. Thanks a lot. Well, we appreciate it. And, it, and it's a delight to have you on and helping us to understand that. 
I think what I'd like to do is to ask uh, you to give us a little bit of your bio and background and, and tell us the work that you do out in Indiana. Well, I am an associate professor in the media school uh, here at Indiana University. Uh, my primary uh, research interests are um, media effects um, and um, uh, First Amendment law and policy as they relate to media effects. So sort of trying to understand the uh, rationale for the need for uh, uh, regulation of um, speech, particularly speech that involves uh, sex and sexuality. Um, I got my degree uh, from the uh, University of California at Santa Barbara. Um, I've been here at Indiana, Indiana University for 19 years uh, now. Um, started in the I'm sorry, I beg your pardon? I said congratulations. Oh, I'm not sure if that, that, that's the right reaction, but thank you. Um, I, uh, it, it is, uh, it's, it's an interesting thing to see uh, how education has uh, metamorphosized over the, the, the those 19 years. We started out as the Department of Telecommunications. The there was another department called the Department of Culture and Communication, and then there was the Journalism School um, that were all together at one point. And then and another point about seven years ago or so, they got the idea that we should combine all three of those departments into uh, one giant media school, which was really interesting because we had all been one giant program apparently before I even got here and I decided to mash them all back together and, and have those personalities um, all working together once again. And as you 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 can, I'm sure, uh, uh, assume the uh, the merging of those personalities and research interests was uh, quite an interesting undertaking, but it's been fascinating. Um, a lot of my research has, again, I'm really interested in looking at the um, the issues of uh, and, and teaching on the issues of the nature and effects of sexual messages in the media, um, media sexual socialization, a, lot, a good deal of evolutionary psychological explanations for media effects, but particularly First Amendment law and policy as it relates to those effects. So trying to explain those, um, the need for regulation and the, the potential uh, effects that drive the need for those regulations um, from a media effects perspective. Um, and I take, um, I try to really take, undertake um, uh, research that's intellectually interesting, but more importantly to me that it's practically uh, applicable uh, to the non-academic world. And to this end, um, I have undertaken research that has uh, been cited by the U.S. Supreme Court. I've um, uh, worked with multiple companies in product and message development, um, and I uh, have served as co-producer on several um, um, media artifacts. Uh, most probably notable was uh, the, the documentary Hot Girls Wanted, um, which was a, a, ended up being an uh, Emmy-nominated Netflix uh, documentary that was at, uh, we, we put together with um, uh, Rashida Jones and several others, Abigail Disney, um, on the issue of the pro-am uh, porn industry. So I've taken, I try, really try to take the, the, the issue of media effects and the, what we know and empirical research and, that, and, and use that to drive um, and explain to people what's really hopefully going on, better understand the issues of sex and sexuality and the regulation of those issues. Well, it sounds like this is a, uh, shall we say, a target-rich environment for you right now <laughs> because there's so much, not only is there so much activity going on in state legislatures, but of course, technology is driving so much of the sexual speech that we see. 
in our society today. But let's bring it down specifically to the state of Texas, where everything is bigger in the state of Texas. And this is a really big piece of legislation that Governor Abbott is introducing, you know, in terms of how parents interact with the schools. And of course, this is where Jethro comes in, because he was the sharp end of the stick in terms of dealing with parents. And so we, you know, we've got some experience. I was also on a school board up in the state of Vermont. Um, so polar opposite in every sense, size, politics, everything else from Texas. But that be that as it may, I think the question that I'd like to start with is what are the basic parameters of pornography versus obscenity? Because Governor Abbott wants to remove anything that's pornographic or obscene from school libraries and prevent teachers or punish teachers who provide that to kids. But those are two different things, aren't they? They really are. And, um, you know, the, the, the issue of obscenity versus pornography has been something, it's actually something that we've been going over in one of my classes. I teach a class right now. Uh, uh, Fred, you gave a guest lecture last semester. You've offered to do it again uh, this semester, I, I'll remind you. Um, the <laughs> um, but you know it's actually the calendar we're fantastic yeah the the issue of defining um obscenity has been something that goes back um uh, not quite de de defend uh, in terms legally um that goes back almost two centuries right um and the um the definition has been a moving target something of a, a, a of a red queen right that, that has been uh, moving in, in the sense that it constantly changes, even though the world around it is is changing, it's changing to try and still continue to uh, uh, address what's going on. One of the big problems with regulating um, obscenity and pornography and those types of things, especially in the cyber age, um, is that the law simply cannot move as fast as the technology changes. That's that's one of the things that we see um, all the time. Uh, a perfect example of that is the regulation of, you know, nude selfies um, that that um, students often will send to each other, um, where especially in certain states where the legislatures um, and the judiciary move particularly slowly. Just because of the function and the and the, the 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 shape of the institution, they can't keep up with just what's going on. Um, you know what what happens with these what, what kids can come up with. Kids can come up with uh, uses for technologies that were never meant for any of this um, uh, in ways that are that, that the, the designers of this content never intended. Um, so defining what we're talking about um, uh, is obviously a, a really important starting point. Um, pornography actually, as it stands, uh, um, based current, most contemporarily on uh, the, what, the 1973 Miller decision, um, uh, Miller v. California decision, is uh, specifically laid out so that, in essence, the, well, I'm sorry, pornography is not, obscenity is, right, um, uh, that draws the parameters and pornography based on those on that uh, decision in that case in the, the in the, the Miller case, pornography does get some First Amendment prote protection. It is not considered pornography specifically as it stands on its own is not necessarily obscenity, right? And that's an important distinction. 
So we have to think, you know, pornography put basically uh, in the Miller decision, where the average person applying contemporary community standards finds the work taken as a whole appeals to parent interest that it has. That's the first prong of the test. The second prong being that it basically the, the law in question that is that is making this content that is defining this content as obscene. I'm sorry, because I wasn't talking about uh, defining pornography, I'm talking about defining obscenity, that the, the, the laws or law that is that are being tested, um, that they specifically lay out what counts and what doesn't count, right, um, in that local community. And then the real kicker um, that, that, that Miller added from the previous standard, right, that was the, the Roth standard of 57 and the Fannie Hill standard that sort of really codified this in 66, is whether it is or is not with or without serious uh, social, scientific, political value, right? Um, however, as we've talked about- um, So Brian, can I ask you a question? Please do, so please. we're talking about the definition of obscenity that has last been codified in 1973. Am I understanding that right? Nearly 50 yes. years ago was the last time we've really said this is what counts as obscene, right? Yes, uh, uh, as far as over the overarching concept of obscenity, that is correct. Yeah. Right. So, so and there's so, been a little bit of social and technical change since then. Just, just a <laughs> tiny bit, um, a, a tiny bit. And so, the thing that's really interesting to me is that as you're trying to enact a law in Texas, for example, that um, is is trying to prevent these things from happening, it, part of the reason, correct me if I'm wrong, but part of the reason why we create laws is to help move the law forward and get updated definitions and people are going to sue governor abbott in the state of texas over this bill if it gets passed i'm sure and that's going to further define what obscenity is that is that a fair way to uh really simplify that brian i'm not I, yes i'm I'm, a, I'm sorry to be this way but yes <laughs> be a no. professor <laughs> i'm sorry, or an, an economist right i've never been an economist with one hand on one hand there's this and on the other um, I think it was, was, was it Eisenhower or Truman that said that. Um, uh, I've never met an economist with one hand. Um, yes and no in, in, in uh, several respects. On, in one respect, yes, they're trying to further um, uh, 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 define, I guess, what, what counts as obscenity. Although, from what I've read, and, and I, I'll admit I've not read all the documentation I have not read the the uh, on this. It's it's, it's a fast moving issue. Uh, it seems like to me, to be perfectly honest, a, a pandering issue, uh, and a, that is very very political, um, and uh, right playing to the bait to a, to a base in a, in a, a political environment. Um, I don't see in the releases uh, that have been associated with this much attempt to define what they're really trying to go after. So I think that's probably one of the places that the those that try and sue the governor when this comes out um, will attack uh, the, the validity of the law is that it's overbroad, uh, potentially um, it's, and it's, it's vague um, in terms of what counts as obscenity and what, what counts as, as pornography. Another huge issue associated with this is the issue of the notion of variable obscenity. Um, and that is the idea that what might not be considered pornography or what might be considered pornography and not obscenity for adults very well could be considered 
um, uh, and, the, and the Supreme Court has codified this as well, um, uh, obscene as when children are involved, when minors are involved. So um, what they're really trying to do, again, I, I think here is one, pander, uh, two, um, basically remove books that make them uncomfortable. Um, I, again, I, I do not see in any of the, 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 the um, work that's been done on this and the, the press that I've read about this so far, a very specific uh, set of definitions of what exactly they, they don't want in there. They don't want books, apparently, that have anything to do with uh, non-heteronormative um, relationships that even hint at that sort of thing. Obviously, the issue of uh, critical race theory is, you know, completely untouchable. They're trying to do the same thing that they did with critical race theory that they did with um, uh, uh, two, as they are with uh, uh, sexual speech, but particularly sexual speech that has to do with uh, non-heteronormative um, uh, sexual relationships. So I'm not sure that they're trying to redefine the the definition of obscenity or the definition of pornography. I think they are pandering. Um, a great deal, but also, and, and I, I mean that from a, a, an empirical perspective, I really don't see where they're actually <laughs> providing a, a new set of criteria for what counts and what doesn't count. They basically said, we don't like these 850 books that uh, a particular uh, uh, legislator put forward, and so they're out, and anything that are like them that we decide uh, are, are out are out as well. Yeah, and so this, so this, brings, Brian, up, the, this brings up an interesting um conundrum that we often face as we're trying to make decisions. How do we make a decision that is good for everyone? It's it's challenging. And one thing that I do appreciate about the Parental Bill of Rights, um, this is according to a tweet from Teresa Woodard, um, T. Woodard 8 on Twitter, and she has a copy of um, his Bill of Rights that he's handing out at, his, at a campaign event. And one of the things that it says on there is that parents are the primary decision makers. And this, I think, is something that um, Fred and I have certainly talked about this a lot, that we have to ensure that parents are able to make the decisions for their students. And, you know, when we talk about banning books and things like that, my perspective as an educator is that if you're trying to teach something, the best way to teach it is to have a lot of kids read a lot of different books on it and have them talk about the themes and the things they learn from it rather than saying we're all going to read this specific book together because reading a specific book together eliminates the amount of discussion that can happen because you're only citing one specific text and there's benefit to having many different perspectives so uh, you know just speaking about book banning in particular i would say all books should be banned from school i don't mean that how you think don't worry <laughs> what i mean I gotta, is that I've got, to, I've got to go so <laughs> So there's our headline for the show. That's right. All <laughs> books should be banned. No, what I mean is that every kid should have a choice of what they read and that the theme should be drawn out of those books, that we should use those books to teach the different things and let kids bring their different perspectives. The beauty in that approach is that you never have to worry about the school district uh, having a book be challenged because every kid is choosing their own thing. And that allows the parents to be involved in that discussion and also takes the, the, the situation out of the teacher's hands of where they're saying, you have to read this book and 
whether you think it's appropriate or not, you still have to read it. And you still have to um, be exposed to it, even if you don't want to. And that's where, you know, a lot of these things, I think this is a, a bad way to make that, to make those decisions um, in that respect. But there's starting with making sure parents are primary decision makers, I think is definitely a, a step in the right direction. The rest of it may not be great, but that point, at least, I think there's some power in there. Yeah, and I think that's going to be what is compelling to folks, to many folks in Texas, is this idea that, you know, parents will exert more control. I, I think I, I maybe want to have actually will have Jethro expand on this a little bit. So the idea would be that you would take specific books out of curricula altogether. So if you've got an English lit class, then the teacher would not be assigning specific literature. Just just so I understand. Yeah, that's right. Because it, it takes away. So it gives more student agency and choice, which is something that is always beneficial. And then it allows you to really examine English literature, for example, by saying, here's how we define English lit. And so let's say Victorian, for example, is like 1800 to 1890 or so. And so we're going to yeah. read books that were published in that time frame. And so you find whatever books you can find that were published by an English author during that time frame. And everybody reads it. And you look at the similarities and differences between that because that actually teaches English literature as opposed to here are three books that we've chosen that, you know, exemplify English literature during this time. But there were a lot more books published than those three during that time. And it's a lot more open, expansive way to look and give kids real exposure to what's there. I can see the utility of that. I also can see the trouble with the practicality of that, um, that issue, uh, just because I mean, again, so you're going to have every every kid in one of these classes pick a book and make every kid read. Is that what you're basically suggesting? So if you yeah. had 24 students in the classroom, 24 students make this decision and 24 students read 24 different books, potentially um, in a curriculum that probably lasts, what, 16 weeks, something like that. Um, yeah, correction. See where I'm getting, going with that. Yeah, they don't read. They don't all read each other's books. They read their own book and bring evidence from their own book to explain what it is they're trying to learn. So, 24 different books. Not every student reading 24 different books. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. Um, but but discussing 24 different books with each yeah. other. Yeah. And I, 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 you know, from from as a as a current educator, um, I can tell you, and we we kind of do something a little similar to that in my, um, my my pornography, history, nature, and effects class, where each student is, at this point, assigned, I will, I will say, um, one or two articles. Some of them are journal articles and very, uh, you know, media effects, uh, psychological science um, related, but others are from The Atlantic or, you know, USA, even a USA Today or an editorial or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and and it, it's a young course. They taught it the first time last semester, so that's kind of how I tend to try and de develop courses like this. Um, the one, not, not the one, but one problem that 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 potentially could lead to is some students, and these are college students, are not very good at synthesizing, uh, abstracting, and providing these types of information. So again, you know, look, I, I'm not, I have no problem with with uh, increasing or decreasing the burden on educators, honestly, um, to a 
degree, right, within, within a certain spectrum. Um, but that is, you know, you're, that's a potentially pretty radical uh, change in, in the approach to, to a, the process of education. Not that it's a bad one. Um, yeah. Um, so that's just something, that's one thing uh, to think about um, with, with regard to this. I, I do think that perhaps another approach related could be to have educators in these areas do the, the front work right, to, to go through and find multiple um, um, examples. Uh, now, you know, the, uh, obviously there's gonna be problems with that, um, but, but a, a set of, or, of, or, of articles of, of pieces of literature, of examples, and then draw from that uh, uh, collection only, if, if only to keep it manageable um, so that we can have a, well, an opportunity and, that, and another piece of that, too, is that, you know, there is a role for the expertise of the educator in terms of what is particularly exemplary in a given period of time. Um, I think my issue here, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, Brian, is that, in a way, one of the challenges of this particular legislation, given how vague it is, we have no idea what the enforcement mechanism is or or what have you. But we've already seen instances of schools reacting to the complaints of even a single parent by removing books from the school library. And so the question then becomes, you know, well, my question to you is, you know, what do we say to kids who really want to read these things and now they're not available as easily? So there's that. But then the other question I have for you, given your research, is, is this a, a phenomenon that has simmered over a period of time, or are we seeing an uptick now, or does this come in waves? How would you characterize this kind of situation? I, I think it comes in waves um, more than than not. Um, it comes. It seems to be, you know, uh, critical race theory was the, uh, you know, has been been a hot topic that has been. Um, popular, a focus. Um, it's a messaging issue, right, on the part of, uh, of, of politicians a lot, of, a lot of the time, unfortunately. Um, one of the things as you were, you know, asking that question that, that um, I, 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 th I thought about, and I thought about this a lot, having, again, 19 years of experience, about 17 years teaching this class, Sex in the Media. And one of the things that has really struck me has been this notion of uh, those who identify as anything but heterosexual, um, the 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 gift that the internet and literature and modern mediated technology has been for them, in in allowing them to be exposed to ideas other than um, that you know you grow up you marry a man or a woman the opposite sex of whatever you are. Um, and you uh, you have children, and we we just continue on in that in that way um, as a society. And the thing that has bothered me, or that not has bothered me, that, that that I've noted is how many times I've had students that said I found a website that it didn't teach me that you know um, that I was gay. It didn't teach me that I was bisexual. It didn't show me how to you know do something I shouldn't be doing or anything like that. It made me feel like I wasn't broken. It made me feel like I wasn't different or that there were others like me. 
that there was an ex that there were others that, that have had a similar experience uh, to me. And that I think is so incredibly valuable. And if you look at the level of depression that we've and, and, and suicide and self-harm that we've seen um, and on those that don't identify as heterosexual, it's, it has we've seen improvements um, as they've had access to these types of information. So banning books, removing books from libraries that could potentially allow people who think there is something wrong with me um, and I and they have no outlet, no nowhere to go to 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 see that others have had these ideas in the past as well, is a really sad idea and a uh, something that I think could potentially offers to do a really a lot of a lot of har unintended harm. Um, I'm I'm, sh I'm I'm sure these folks that are trying to pass this legislation, at least I I really hope, are not trying to harm anybody uh, in 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 doing this type of thing. But I do uh, see the idea of removing certain books that could could expose people to ideas that are maybe not mainstream um, as something that could be particularly psychologically harmful. And now it's interesting listening to you talk because um, one of the things that I'm fascinated by is how technology plays into responses to these kinds of social movements. And one of the things that I've been both bemused and, and fascinated by are the kids themselves who are using TikTok and Instagram and other services to set up virtual band book clubs. And they recommend books to each other and they help kids find each, you know, find these books and so forth. And, and I, you know, just last week, Jethro and I did a, a, a show on student activism. And my impression, and love your thoughts on this, is that the ability to be a student activist is is dropping lower and lower in the grades. Interesting. Can can you can you elaborate on that further? Well, you know, for instance, the the classic uh, student activist uh, Supreme Court cases, Tinker versus Des Moines Independent School District, back in the '60s when kids wanted to wear black armbands uh, to protest the Vietnam War. And we think of student activism as being in, in the high school. You know, juniors and seniors, they kind of have the maturity and the interest to start doing things. My argument is, and, and from the examples out there, I think we are seeing that kids in middle school now have the tools to be activists in different ways. And it's wildly erratic and, and it, it you know, it's it's an unformed thing. But when you look at TikTok, when you look at Snapchat, when you look at Instagram, those things legally available to 13 and up, but really in practical terms, much younger. And these kids know how to galvanize their peers and quote unquote, go viral. And that's giving them an interesting platform and voice that they might not have had, you know, even a decade ago. Oh, that's exactly the opposite of how I originally understood what you had said. So I'm really glad <laughs> that, we, that, that you uh, clarified, clarified that. Yeah, no, and I completely agree. The, the ability to get into the influence business um, is, you know, the, the, the social influence business, galvanizing a social movement is, is, is a potential runaway train, right? We've seen, we've seen uh, 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 teens and younger um, uh, age groups 
have war effects on world political uh, movements, right? On on uh, the the gathering of protests, uh, the 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 effects of you know uh, shutting down servers in entire countries or in across continents, um, which is amazing. Let's be clear, not all of it's legal. To be oh, fair, <laughs> absolutely not. But, and there again is is the real one of the big questions is, you know, a lot of this is. We're, we're kind of rearranging the chairs on the Titanic, right? I mean, it, it, in the sense that so you're going to put these this legislation in place, and within a month, some new technology is going to come out that 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 creates an end run around any any of it. Um, and so again, the technology has the ability to move so much faster um, than than the the approach the approaches that we try to use legislatively, judicially. Um, to to regulate and 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 affect this type of content, and so I think that those that are trying to put forward these types of uh, ideas, like uh, Jethro, your the notion of a parents' bill of rights sounds fantastic. I mean, it, it is a it's great messaging, you know, uh, it really is. I, I all credit um, in in terms of 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 that. When you get into the weeds of what it means, um, and and again, as I think Fred, you you mentioned, you know, we're not even sure how they would enforce some of this. We're not even sure what the mechanisms are. Um, it starts to get very very tricky, and it starts to get really ambiguous as to, you know, even what the rationale is for, for that drives some, you know, a. Uh, 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 the banning of and and maybe banning is not even the right word, but the removal of some of these pieces of literature from libraries. The um, the idea that you know if a if a teacher says something, comes up with an idea, presents a particular idea, points kids in a, the direction of a book that is on a list that somebody somewhere said is you know uh, non heteronormative and and therefore by whatever definition a particular county came up with is therefore pornography um, uh, in terms of this notion of uh, uh, not even variable obscenity, but just pornography, right? It's it just they, the, the town decides that this counts, um, that this, this, this educator could lose their license, they could be fined, they could be jailed. Um, when you get into the weeds on this thing, they're creating a, a potential jungle that is gonna grow in months, if not weeks, um, as to what counts and what doesn't count. And then, this, and I've seen this before, I saw this a lot with the regulation of adult businesses. Um, it becomes an issue of dueling experts, right? Uh, one side will bring in a person who says, you know, you, how are you defining this? What is, you know, and if you're defining it that way, look, here's the empirical evidence that suggests there's no evidence, there's no support for your position. Another person will come in and say, well, if we define it this way, it looks like there's nothing but support for this position. Um, and so, you know, then it gets tied up in the court and it's hilarious to look at these, you know, even the Supreme Court decisions and the lower court decisions where they, the, the judge, the, you know, the justices will say things like, you know, well, the, the, what was the famous one? Yeah, I know it when I see it, obviously, right? The throwing up the, of the hands and, and, and just saying, I just don't, I can't tell you what it is, but I know it when I see it. Um, you know, Father Stewart in Jacobellis v. Ohio. Right, right. Um, you know, we saw the same thing in um, uh, uh, a case in Los Angeles where uh, Justice Souter said, 10 years ago, I, you know, I thought we didn't need new evidence to show that uh, strip clubs cause crime uh, around a community. I figured we could just assume that that was the case. But now, because of the, the data that these folks have 
uh, my uh, colleague and I had presented. Um, you know what, I, I, I rescind that comment. I think we actually do need to do this, this type of research, which was very a, a very lucrative statement uh, for me um, at that at the time, uh, or became one. Congratulations, but, Brian. Well, yeah, but the, well, it dried up. Don't worry. But the, yeah. But and also for folks that you know supported or just saw an opportunity to make money, uh, uh, you know, finding evidence that potentially conflicts the evidence that we were going to pr uh, provide. So it's it just it's a hornet's nest. It's it's like kicking a hornet's nest. It's like uh, putting Miracle Grow on poison ivy potentially. Um, and, you know, um, I think Jethro, you mentioned this, you mentioned this as well. It's, it's, it sure is hard to get Pandora back in that box. Um, and especially when kids are involved. I mean, if you look at the research on the V chip and the ratings, basically what we found was the, 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 the age groups that knew how to use this technology the best were kids, right? They were the right. ones what ended up happening was we had anecdote, anecdote after anecdote of kids that basically were banning channels from their parents, which was the exact opposite of what it was set up to do. But it's a great example of what these types of, of you know, so look, there are, as I said before, there are kids that are, you know, not going to do a great job potentially summarizing. By the way, some of my students do, have done phenomenal, many of them have done phenomenal jobs. Last semester, they did an absolutely great job for the most part in, in, in abstracting these things and presenting them to the rest of the class. Um, but there's gonna be, the, there, there's a lot of kids that are very mature, very intelligent, and are going to be able to use this technology to really uh, gum up the works for adults, right? Yeah, and, well, let me leave you with, let me leave you with my final thought on this, and then we'll see what Jethro wants sure. to weigh in on. But, but for Brian, I, one of the great quotes from the early days of the internet was that the internet treats censorship as damage and routes around it. And I think that actually you could substitute the word kids for internet, and it's exactly true. Kids view censorship as damage and they actively try to route around it. So, you know, we talk about whatever the political motivations may be, or, or even to be generous, moral motivations of Governor Abbott. Um, but I think what you've done a good job of doing is highlighting the practical challenges that the legislation faces. So that's that's my takeaway. It's going to be interesting to watch how that that plays out. Yeah. So my final thoughts are the there's a lot still to be discussed on this and I'm not um, I'm not swayed either way on it just yet uh, I do want to just go back to the comment made earlier about the every kid choosing their own book kind of a thing and the reason why kids are not good at synthesizing information is because in our current system the teachers do it all for them and that's what the real problem is is that we can't have good debate or good conversations even in school because we aren't we aren't allowed to because of how the teachers teach and and how they are taught to teach and so opening up the opportunity for discussion i think is incredibly valuable and helpful and even better if kids come with completely different choices in what they're reading so that they can argue why their thing is worthwhile if a teacher is arguing for or against something she's getting in the middle of something that is eventually going to come back and bite her one way or the other. 
But if the students are arguing for it, that is further giving them voice, giving them opportunity to express their opinion and their beliefs, and you learn your beliefs and opinions through sharing them. You don't learn them from just listening to what other people say. You learn their beliefs and opinions. And we need to have kids expressing themselves more often and defining what they think is appropriate. And the way to do that is through discussion and conversation. And, you know, it's it's something that is not happening enough in schools right now. And, and I think we just need more of that. So um, to be clear, I do not believe that we should ban all books in schools nor do I believe that we should even ban books, period. Just to be clear, that's not the point that I was making. I said that intense, intentionally to, for the shock value, just to be funny. So just to be Jessica, clear. Can I add a uh, piggyback onto that briefly? Yeah. Um, and, and that is that in my sex in the media class, I started out with a, an approach where after each exam, we would have a day of, we called it debate, but then it just became discussion. And the issue was, I would say, look, who has something that they, that they are unclear on, that they, that's something contemporary that they want to talk about? Um, and, uh, or, or, and if they didn't have something, then I'd give them what I thought was a controversial topic. And then it was their job to discuss this, this issue, to, to debate it, to discuss it, to just give their opinions. And in essence, they got credit as long as they spoke, right? Mm -hmm. As they said something, as long as they said something on, on the issue. And it, I was shocked at how quickly that became one of the most popular parts of the course. And so yeah. originally we just did it twice uh, in the semester. And then I started trying, I put it in three times, four times. And, and, and some students would say, hey, like, are you teaching or are, are we just having a discussion? And I, you know, my response was both, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and this is, you know, you, because... As you said, they're not, a lot of them are really not good at making their points clear because they haven't been taught to do that. They haven't practiced it. Um, they haven't, and, and again, the educators haven't been taught to let them do that. So I think there's a lot of validity in what you're saying um, in terms of uh, giving them some, some uh, a, little, a little extra leash and letting them figure these things out um, on their own. That said, having a goalie, I'm sorry to mix all my metaphors like this, but in the room to keep the puck in play, um, right. you know, uh, is also helpful. And maybe that's what we need to be really working with the educators on is to, to keep, keep us on target or on, not on target, on task um, to try and get to, you know, the truth that they really do want to understand or the, the big T, little T, whichever one yeah. you're talking about um to, to to develop that kind of uh, approach yeah so let me let me just close with one quick story so i taught early morning seminary which was church study um in fairbanks alaska for a year and it was it was a great experience kids came they were all we were studying gospel related things right and i started each day with a question of the day and i said what is it that you want to know and understand and of course the kids brought up every controversial topic they could possibly imagine in that thing. And the beauty of it was that they were asking real questions and getting real advice from other people, teens their age. My role in the classroom was to ensure that if somebody said something that was grossly incorrect, that I would call it out and say, ah, that's not true. Or, um, 
or you said that everybody believes this, but not everybody does believe that. There are different religions that believe that this is perfectly acceptable. So we have to acknowledge that in other people's belief systems, that works. Anyway, the point of this is, is that that part of the lesson was the most engaged, most entertaining, most meaningful, and kids really developed their understanding and learning through that conversation piece. And that is what I'm trying to get to in the rest of our education is that that those, those conversations need to happen, the questions need to be asked, and they need to be in a place where they can, one, feel safe asking and bringing in different evidence, and two, they need to be able to do that away from their parents where they can actually have a conversation where their parents are not constantly interjecting and saying, no, that's not right, this is what we believe. And being able to to have that conversation and there's value and meaning in that. But you, you I mean, the, 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 the irony there, the dissonance there of <laughs> giving parents a bill of rights that says, you can go into a room where I have no, <laughs> no say in how the conversation goes is, I, I mean, th that's a, that's going to be, a, that's a difficult sell. That's a difficult, the, 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 the actual application of that process is very difficult. I, I also wanted to ask when you did that, um, did you find that that was also one of the most educational processes for you in the class? Because that's what I've found is that, that I learned yeah. more on those days than I do any other days of my life every year. Yeah, absolutely. And, and because of the kids, uh, innocence and inexperience they ask questions that i would never think to ask because they are not they don't have the life experience that i have they don't have the the knowledge that i have and that is very rewarding for me to see things from a fresh perspective as well yeah that's something that i really highlight at the beginning of the semester every semester is that i'm i will tell you right now I'm gonna learn as much from you as you are from me and probably more in a lot of ways. Certainly in terms of, of the use of technology, the effects of technology, how you're using it, what it's doing potentially to you. Um, I can tell you what you know. a couple of hundred studies say. Uh, I can point you in the right direction to read these things um, and explain the stats to you. But you are, your lived experience is your lived experience and me being exposed to that, especially over, dozens and dozens of times every semester actually ends up being something of a study uh something of a a, a body of information that that allows me to to look at this stuff uh in a a, a really uh, dynamic perspective from a really dynamic perspective yeah great conversation this has been really good brian thanks so much for being here that's been my pleasure i've 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 learned a lot and actually we're supposed to have one of those debates tomorrow and um, I, I think my opening uh, uh, discussion question will be, what do you want to know? I mean, honestly, real, I mean, if, if that's okay, Jethro, I'll, I'll borrow from your, uh, you know, what, what do you want to know about? What do you want to, what do you want to hear? Yeah. Um, and, and those are often the ones that just run away with themselves, but it's so interesting. So thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, thank you. Well, it's good, Brian, to have you participate in this, and I certainly enjoyed sort of standing on the sidelines as two educators really, you know, <laughs> compared methodologies and philosophies. So this actually was a really good conversation. So thank you. Alrighty, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, 
free speech, the First Amendment, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to a growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find all the Cybertraps podcast. You can find the Cybertraps po- Cyber. Bleh. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions, guest, or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this podcast. Please leave us a five-star rating and review. We appreciate having you with us and look forward, look forward to you joining us next time. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.